from Acts chapter 7, 54 through 8, 1. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. Heavenly Father, we come together once again to be reminded of who you are. The wonderful news that you sent your son. Lord Jesus, we come together to be reminded of your incarnation, of your holy, perfect, righteous life laid down for us. And Spirit, we come to be reminded of your presence. We come to be reminded that we belong under your control and under your influence. And I pray that we would be a church that is so. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So uh, last week we began a conversation, um, a series called Under the Influence, and we're going to continue that today, and, and we're going to come back to this series over the course of, of this year sporadically. Um, two weeks from now, after the away game, we're going to meet together in, in the, the meeting place, the, the, the new place that we get to hang out in and gather in, and, uh, and, and, and on February 7th, when we do that, we are going to uh, start a new series uh, on the book of Ephesians. And, uh, and, and the, the book of Ephesians, it's a, it's a letter written by Paul, and it's really about how the church is formed, how uh, God is creating this, this new church. And so um, I want to urge you house church shepherds uh, to, to join us um, in, your, in your weekly uh, house church gatherings to, to come alongside uh, what will be happening in the, in the large group gathering uh, in the study of Ephesians. And we have a really good recess for, resource for you. It's called Ephesians, How Jesus Creates a New People in a New World by Brad Watson. I have put a, a link to where you can get this on our Facebook group page as well as um, on uh, our website. And, uh, and so this is a really good opportunity for you to sit down with your house church and for you guys to dis discuss what it means and what it looks like for us to be uh, a church. And so I'd really, really encourage you to, to go through that. But what we're here to do today is uh, to, to talk one more time um, about what it means to look like to be under the influence of the Spirit. And that, that, kinda, that idea comes from Ephesians 5 where Paul tells us not to be drunk with wine, not to uh, abuse alcohol to the the point where you're handing over control of yourself to your flesh because that, that always results in sin, rather be under the influence of the Spirit. Well, what we talked about last week is that, you know, we, we as Christians, as we're, we're Trinitarians. We believe there's one God, and that God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Spirit are God. And, and this is a mystery that's hard for us to wrap our minds around, but, but we affirm what the Bible affirms. And, and oftentimes we, we, we talk about the Father and we pray to the Father and we talk about the Son and we pray to the Son, but we don't talk about the Spirit very often and we very seldom pray to the Spirit. And, and, and oftentimes we are two-thirds Trinitarian. But the reality is, is that if you are in Christ, 
that if you have embraced what Jesus has done for you at the cross, that he has made an exchange, his perfect, righteous, sinful life, sinless life for your unrighteous, sinful life, that he has made you righteous by what he's done for you, that, that by the blood of his cross, atonement has been made and you are at peace with God because of him. If you are in Christ, then you have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit and that Holy Spirit takes up residence. He lives in you. And it's not that you have some of the Holy Spirit and other people have more of the Holy Spirit. You have the same amount. It's not a quantity thing. It's an influence thing. It's like one of those, those showers that, that has one control knob and you turn it on and, and, and the, the, the water comes out full blast, but you control how much is hot and how much is cold as it mixes together. And the question is for your life, how much is it, is, of it is the spirit and how much of it is the flesh? And, and it's really about giving more influence over to the spirit. It's about surrendering. To him, And so we're looking at instances in the book of Acts where we see that people were filled by the Spirit. And we looked at one of those last week. In Acts 6, there's a problem within the church. There's a group of people that aren't being taken care of. And so the apostles gather everybody together and they say, we're having a big family meeting and the family has a problem, so the family's going to fix the problem. And the problem was there's this group of widows that weren't being taken care of. And so what they said is you guys are going to select seven people full of the Spirit completely under the influence of the Spirit, and they're going to serve this need. And so they did. And we're introduced to a man named Stephen who's full of the Spirit. Last week at the end of our gathering, we, we put up a bunch of slides that showed the various needs uh, that we have in terms of the large Sunday morning gathering. And there's a whole list of needs that we went through. And, and, and I'm really happy to say that many of you stepped forward and said, this is a family problem. I'm part of the, I'm part of the, the, the family. I'm going to take care of this. And you, 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 you've, you dove into that. There's still need, just to, know, to let you know. But, but I love the fact that so many people, and I praise God for that fact, so many people said, this, this is a family thing. I'm part of the family. I'm going to jump in and serve. Not out of guilt, but out of the influence of the Holy Spirit. So I want to look at something um, that, that happens. Uh, well, before I get there, uh, in staff meeting this week, we, we, we analyzed you know, what it is that we're asking of you. Um, and, and we began to look at all of the, the areas of ministry that we're, we're asking for help in. And, and what we realized, if, if everybody served in just one area, right? There's lots of people who are serving in multiple areas. But if everybody just served just in one area, we would be asking for 120 people a month that's 30 people a week over the course of a year to give over 3,000 hours. That's just around the, making the Sunday morning gatherings happen. 3,000 hours. We have a church budget, a, a, an annual church budget of a little over $300,000. A large portion of that goes to the Sunday morning gathering. Uh, it, it's hard to, to draw an exact line about where that amount is, but I think it's safe to say that we spend over $200,000 a year on making Sunday morning gatherings happen. Now, what that should tell you is that the Sunday morning gathering matters. We believe that this is important, that for us to come together and be reminded of who God is and be reminded of what God has done for us and be reminded of this new identity that we have, that this is really, really important. But it's also important that we understand that, that the Sunday morning gathering is a means to an end. It's not the end. That, that not only do we remind ourselves of, of who we are because of God, we also remind ourselves of how we get to live because of that. 
that the Sunday morning gathering should have an impact on our lives outside of this time and space. That our lives should be different because of it. There should be an impact that is made out there. And the reality is, is if we spend all of this time and money on the Sunday morning gathering and it has no impact outside of these walls, that should send us a clear message that we are not a spirit-centered church, we are a human-centered church, and this is a country club and not a church. The Sunday morning gathering, it matters, but it has a purpose. I think the Sunday morning gathering, it's, it's like dating your spouse, I would encourage you, if you're not married, when you get married, decide that you're going to continue to date your spouse. Date your spouse. On Friday nights, um, we hand off, Melissa and I hand off our kids to my parents, and we go on a date. And sometimes we go on a double date. But we go out, and, and maybe we'll spend a little bit more money on a dinner that we would, than we would normally spend. It's a little bit more extravagant. But we spend time with one another, reminding one another of the bond that we have, the intimacy that we have, the friendship and love that we have together. And we're recharged from the week we just had, and, and we're getting ready for the week that, that we're going to have. It's, it's a time that's really, really good for our marriage. It's a beautiful thing. We need that. But the reality is, is that every night's not date night. And a marriage is not a date night. Then a marriage is so much bigger than that. That, that, that we also are parents together. That, that we are also ministering together. That we also have relationships with other people out, out, outside of, of our own spheres. Like, that there's this whole world out there and this whole other life that, that we have to live outside of date night. Date night is crucial. We need date night. But it's not a marriage. And just like date night's not a marriage, so the Sunday gathering is not a church. It's important. We need it. It reminds us of who we are. It re-energizes us. This should be a place that is, that is safe to be reminded of the gospel. So, so you go out and you live in the power of the gospel. And so here's what happens. The end of, or in, in Acts chapter 6, uh, there was a need within the body. And, and the body decided, the family decided how to meet that need. And one of these guys, his name was, was Stephen. But I want, you to, I want to show you something that happens immediately after that. Verse 7 of Acts chapter 6. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. What Luke is, is going to point us to throughout the book of Acts is what, when the Spirit leads, growth follows. And in this instance, spirit-filled people served within the body of, of the church, and as a result of that, more people were added to the church. In other words, people saw that this new community of faith was full of a people who loved one another and served sacrificially to one another, and they wanted to be a part of that. And so it grew. When, when the spirit is, is in the lead, when we are under the influence of the spirit, Growth is a result of that. And we're going to see that again because of Stephen. His, his story continues. Um, Stephen, he was full of the Holy Spirit. Um, he was under the influence of the Spirit. But he recognized that, um, that being influenced by the Spirit wasn't, wasn't particular to just the gathering. He wasn't just under the, in, uh, under the influence of the Spirit when he was at church, so to speak. He wasn't just under the influence of the Spirit when he was ministering to the Greek widows. He was under the influence of the Spirit all the time. 
So look at Acts 6, 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Not among the church people, among the city people. Among the people outside. He was going out and he was proclaiming in powerful ways the the truth of who Jesus is. He was living out of the, the influence of the Spirit and people began to notice. Look at verse 9 and 10. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, also as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Not everybody was a big fan of this spirit-influenced guy. And they had questions And they wanted to debate him. But what they found out is that they weren't really debating him. They were debating God, and they lost. And they didn't like it. Verse 11, Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against his holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. If this sounds familiar to you, it's because this is what happened to Jesus. This same Sanhedrin, the same council that Stephen has brought before, is the same one who condemned Jesus to death, using the same lies or similar ones. So they're targeting Stephen and they're bringing false accusations against him on two fronts, that he's disregarding the Mosaic law and that he's discounting the the importance of the temple. Talking about destroying it. Look at verse 15, this is interesting. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. His face was like, like that of an angel. You know, Luke doesn't give us a whole lot of detail here about what that meant or what that looked like. All we know is that when this council looked at this guy, they saw something that resembled an angelic messenger from God. If if, if you were sitting there and you were watching somebody's face transform and in your spirit you thought, that's an angelic messenger of God, do you think you would listen to what he had to say? They didn't. Beginning of chapter 7, and the high priest said, Are these things so? Make a defense for yourself. And so Stephen does. And I want you to understand something really crucial about this, and we're going to come back to it at the end. Stephen is not a pastor, he's not an apostle, he's not an elder of the church. Stephen is a disciple. Disciple is the New Testament word for Christian, he's a disciple. And he serves in this church. And he lives out of the power of the Holy Spirit. He's a plain, old, ordinary guy. And I want you to see this. He doesn't have a Bible in his hand. He doesn't have notes in front of him. He doesn't have a PowerPoint behind him. And he launches into a sermon. He begins to give them the redemptive history, starting with Abraham. And he talks about how God called Abraham. And he talks about the descendants of Abraham who were enslaved in Egypt. And how God sent them Moses, who brought them out. And why God was giving them his law. They were off sinning, worshiping something else. Even though they'd been miraculously saved. 
And then there's this tabernacle that, that is created, and it's a tabernacle, it's a portable tent, and they take it with them into the promised land, and eventually this becomes a permanent place of worship called the temple. And yet, there's all of these prophets that come, and they keep reminding the people of their sin, and keep calling them to turn to God, and people keep ignoring what, what is said. So that Stephen finishes his sermon in, in verses 51 through 53 by saying, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in your heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's been communicating to you. He's been talking to you for centuries. He's been calling you to repentance. He's calling you to faithfulness. And yet you continually resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did so to you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. As delivered by angels. In other words, he's, he's putting the period down pretty hard right there. As delivered by angels. They looked at him and they saw something that resembled an, a, a, an angelic messenger of God and he's talking to them and he's telling them the truth and they're still not going to listen. The result is that this man, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, stood trial, and he's condemned. Going back to the passage we began with in verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. What I'm about to say, I don't mean to be prophetic in any way. I, I don't want to come off as though I've received some word of the Lord regarding our future. But what I say is, is by looking at the trajectory of the church that it's on now, what I see in our current cultural climate, what I've seen over the previous few decades in our country, and when I look then, compare that to the first three centuries of the church, I believe that should the Lord tarry, should the Lord not come back in the next 300 years, that the next 300 years are going to look a lot more like the first 300 than the most recent 300. Particularly when it comes to the church's relationship with governing authority. For the past 300 years, the church has enjoyed a symbiotic relationship with governing authority. The government has looked at the church and has seen the Judeo-Christian ethic within it, the morals within it, and have adapted them in certain areas of government up until a few decades ago. That for a long time, for the past 300 years, the church has enjoyed protection from the government, certain rights from the government, certain freedoms guaranteed by the government, and even some, some certain financial blessings from the government in the form of not being taxed. The church has been in a symbiotic 
relationship or a partnership with the government, that time is coming to an end. We look at the first 300 years of church and what we see is that the church was viewed by the governing authorities as the enemy, as divisive against it, as destructive against the state, and the church was seen as the enemy, and so the government brought to bear persecution against the church. I believe that it will happen, if not in my lifetime, in the lifetime of my children. That that generation will face trial the way that Stephen faced trial. Now again, I don't mean be be prophetic. This is just looking at the current cultural climate and the trajectory that we're on. I also don't think that it's anything to fear. Because if they are under the influence of the Spirit, the church will not die, it will thrive. Having said that, there is a more imminent trial that we are already facing. Every time we as Christians leave our Christian bubble and leave our Christian circles and we engage in the world, if we are living under the influence of the Holy Spirit, then our lives look radically different to the world. When we by the Spirit forgive, by the Spirit show mercy and grace, when we by the Spirit demonstrate self-control, when we by the Spirit love the unlovable, when we by the Spirit face struggle in life and it grows our faith, it doesn't squelch it. When we by the Spirit see ourselves as living sacrifices to God, then we will be under trial. We will be put under the microscope because that is different. And it may not be under the governing authority, but it might be in the eyes of your neighbor or your coworker or your family member or a friend who doesn't know Jesus and they're looking at you and they're wondering why you are the way that you are. A pastor friend of mine says this, live your life in such a way that it demands a gospel answer. That if people were to look at your life and to ask you the question, why are you that way? Why do you act that way? Why do you speak that way? That the only reasonable explanation is because you have been so radically changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. From the inside out. Are we ready for those trials? I want us to look at Stephen and, and, and see an example of what it means to be under the, the, the influence of the Spirit through trial. And I want to see four things, or talk about four things that come out of that. The first is that Stephen was filled with the Word. In Mark 13, 11, Jesus said, And when they bring you to trial, not if, when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, Do not be anxious beforehand for what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And here's what that means. It means you don't need to go home and write your martyr speech. Like you don't need to stay up late at night worrying about what you're going to say when you come under the microscope, when you come under trial. The Holy Spirit will give you the words to say, but he's not going to conjure words out of thin air. So here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean it's okay to be biblically illiterate. It doesn't mean it's okay to be biblically ignorant. Stephen knew his Bible. Stephen knew of Abraham and Moses and David and Solomon, and he knew what the Mosaic laws was. He knew what the temple was for, and he knew that it all pointed to Jesus. Stephen knew his Bible. And in the moment, under trial, the words hidden in his heart, that word was reached in by the Holy Spirit, grabbed from his heart and put out of his mouth. 
The, 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 the Spirit will give you the words to say. It doesn't mean that it's okay to not know the Word of God. Over the years, I've, I've had several conversations that, that look something like this. And generally, I think in every instance, it's been a man. An older guy past his middle age coming to me saying, I have been in church my whole life, and yet I still feel like a baby Christian. I feel like I don't really know what God has said. And you examine him and, and you ask him questions. And what you find out is generally that in every area of his life, he has demonstrated maturity and responsibility in everything. From, from embracing an education and getting a career, climbing the ladder, accomplishing things in his field. Completely responsible. Responsible as a husband. Responsible as a father. Responsible in the home and for his finances and for his retirement and for all of these things. Complete mature responsibility. But when it comes to the fact that the, the God of the universe has, has, has desired that he know him and has made this word, this written word, and given it to him so that he would know him, he's completely ignored that and denied it and taken, refused to take responsibility for it. And he's simply shown up at church and says, I don't need to know what God says. The guy up front's going to tell me. And it's completely sad. I think it's the spiritual version of, of a 50-year-old guy who needs to put down the video controller, get out of his mom and dad's basement, and go find a job. It's the spiritual immaturity equivalent, and it's just sad. We live in the most biblically rich culture that has ever existed. How many of you have a Bible at home? How many of you have two? Three different English translations. A Bible on your phone. A Bible on your laptop. You see what I'm saying? And yet we are the most biblically illiterate people, comparatively speaking. That we don't know what God has said. And we hear pithy statements. Ones like this that say, God will not give you more than you can handle. And we think that's the Bible. And it's not. Tell Stephen that God's not going to give him more than he can handle. He died. His body couldn't handle the rocks being thrown at it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. I'm willing to bet that Stephen was tempted when he was standing trial to save his own skin and to keep his mouth shut. And yet God showed him another way and he willingly gave down his life instead. Being under the influence of the Spirit under trial means being filled with the Word. Second thing, it means, it means being filled with courage. Spirit-filled courage. Look at 7, chapter 751 again. It says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. The most offensive thing that you can do in our culture is tell them they're wrong. And Stephen is looking at these, these 70 or so elders, spiritual leaders, and he's telling them that they have gotten it wrong. But I want you to see what his motives are. His motives aren't to prove them wrong, to prove himself right. It wasn't to demean them, to elevate him. He is telling them the truth. 
Not because he wants to be right, because he wants to make them righteous, because he wants them to repent. He wants them to turn. He wants them to come to the cross and exchange their sin for the righteousness of God if they will only listen to the Spirit. And he confronts them with the truth, and they don't want to hear it, and it's offensive to them. What kind of courage does it take to tell people the truth? But do it in a way not to make yourself right, but to still know Jesus. Courage. That kind of spiritual courage. You know, I think that we look at Stephen and, and we want to believe that, that Stephen was a single guy with nothing to lose. That, that he didn't have parents to take care of, that he didn't have a wife at home, that he didn't have kids to look after. We want to think that he's, he's a single guy with nothing to lose. And we don't know his situation, but we know from the years of martyrs since that that is rarely the case. That there are men who when they willingly lay down their life, they realize that they are sacrificing themselves, but they're also sacrificing the well-being of those that love them and depend on them. What kind of courage does it take to not only put your life on the line, but to put your family's life on the line? Man, I'm talking to you. Would we, would we sacrifice a a job that God is calling us to because it doesn't make enough money? Will we keep our mouth shut in the workplace because we're, we're worried that if we, we proclaim the gospel, we might get fired and that would affect our bottom line and our family that's depending upon us? Being under the influence means being filled with, with courage, but it's not a courage that you can muster up. It's a courage that you can only get from the Spirit inside of you. The third thing I want us to see is that it's a spirit-filled hope. Verses 54 and 55, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Imagine being in a room, and and 70-some guys are grinding their teeth at you, and they want nothing but your blood. They want to kill you. They want to see you dead. And not being afraid of that, because somehow the Spirit opens your eyes, and you're able to see a different reality, a truer reality, of a God standing in all of his glory with Jesus standing at the right side of him. A spiritual hope that the Spirit opens his eyes to see God and to see beyond your current circumstances and to know that no matter what the circumstances say about what's about to happen to you, that's worth it. It's hope. A spirit-filled hope, but it's also a spirit-filled love. Look at the last words out of Stephen's mouth. Verse 60. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. To have prayers of forgiveness on your lips towards the very men who are killing you. What kind of love is that? Where does that love come from? It does not come from the heart of man. It only comes from the heart of God. 
to pray for the salvation of people who are in the act of killing you. In all of human history, there have been millions of people who have died for what they believe. The only ones I know of who have died with lips full of forgiveness for the ones that were killing them are Christians. Because they're the only ones that have the Spirit of God living inside them, enabling them to have that kind of love. Spirit-filled love. Are we ready to stand trial? I don't know if Stephen would have answered yes to that that morning. But the thing is, it's not like Stephen woke up that morning and decided to be under the influence of the Spirit. He lived his life under the influence of the Spirit. And so when it came for the time of his trial, it was just another day under the influence of the Spirit. I want to close with with looking at what happened because of this. Chapter 8, verse 1, it says, And Saul approved of his execution. The author Luke is giving us a picture of what is about to come through this new character in a story named Saul. A Saul who vehemently opposed Christ and his followers, who relished in imprisoning them and persecuting them, and yet the intervention of Jesus into his life radically transforms Saul, that he becomes the Apostle Paul, that he becomes the Apostle to the Gentiles, that, that most of the New Testament is written by this guy. And the catalyst for the change is Stephen. You know that before Stephen's death, the the church was was in Jerusalem. It was this this Jewish Christian bubble within Jerusalem. But Jesus said in Acts 1, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, but in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And yet there is still, they're just huddled together in Jerusalem. But when Stephen was killed, that changed. When Stephen was martyred, Christians began to disperse. And some went up to Antioch, and it was there in Antioch where Gentiles became believers in Jesus. And it was this church in Antioch where people were called Christians for the first time. And it was there in Antioch that these guys, Paul and Barnabas, they laid their hands on them, and they sent them out to the uttermost parts of the world. Raise your hand if you're a Gentile. That means you're non-Jewish. Just so you know, if you have faith in Jesus Christ and you're a Gentile, you can link that back to Stephen. God used him as a catalyst for millions of people to know who Jesus is. And here's the point I want you to see. Stephen was not a pastor. He was not an elder. He didn't go to seminary. He wasn't an apostle. He wasn't anybody big in the church. He was just a disciple. And yet one disciple under the influence of the Spirit changed millions of lives. I believe that one of you, one man or one woman from new community could have more, huger impact than I will ever have. That one person surrendered to the influence of the Spirit of God will be far greater than a thousand preachers preaching a thousand sermons. All that makes the difference is the Spirit of God. Church, I wanted to do this series not simply because I want 
us to be a spirit-filled, spirit-centered people? It's because I want to be a spirit-filled person. It's because I want to be under the influence of the spirit. Because I recognize that in my life, I got the flesh turned up and the spirit turned down. And in my conversations with even people within my own house church, I don't go real and I don't go deep and I don't love them well because I'm loving myself more. In my conversations with people over coffee, I don't, I don't go real and I don't go deep and I don't proclaim the truth because, because I'm not seeing the hope that lies beyond. I'm just seeing the present moment and I don't have courage because I'm full of fear. And the words of, of God's words aren't, aren't coming to mind in those moments. And I desire to be filled with the Spirit because otherwise my life doesn't mean anything. And I'm never going to do anything really that matters unless the Spirit does it in me. And I am tired of trying to control and manipulate and get my way and force things into existence by my own power because it's completely powerless. I need the Holy Spirit desperately. you as we close ask the worship team to come back up and will you pray for me as I pray for you will you pray for the spirit to take control of me as I pray the same for you Holy God, that you saved us is beyond reason. You redeemed us is beyond comprehension. That you have given us your spirit doesn't make sense. As Ryan was telling me a little while ago, it's it's always been that the Spirit has is, is been locked inside a box, locked inside of a church building, when the reality is, is the Spirit lives in us. But rather than living by the power of that Spirit, we live by our own power. And I repented that this morning, and I pray for change within me. But Father, I pray for our church. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take control. I pray that you would would just permeate everything of who we are and how we live. That as we live our lives, there would be such an intense presence of you in us that people cannot help but see and give us an opportunity to proclaim the gospel. We pray that your spirit would lead and that we would surrender control because that's what it means. Surrender. Help us to surrender. In the name of Jesus.